what would happen if we chose to really tell the truth about ourselves? Like if we really, really just told the real truth of our lives. I'm not saying that it's true. I'm saying that it's my truth. You're listening to Hammered. For myself, there was always a, an underlying message of, you got to look good. You got to put your best self forward and you always got to look good at any cost. And I really, it, I didn't really understand what life was about or why we even had a life. Questions never even crossed my mind of how I could create a life to be or make choices to, you know, have goals in a certain style of life. But all kinds of little messaging along the way that we kind of tell ourselves and we create these fantasies in our mind of how we want our lives to be. And and I guess I just had this really free spirit and I wanted to, to see the world and I wanted to be free. There was something in me that was, was very um, discontented. And I had a motorcycle early and I remember riding that motorcycle around our neighborhoods and I'd wear my, I'd, I wouldn't even wear shoes. I just wore like a pair of Levi cutoff shorts and a cutoff shirt and a helmet and rode around. And my sister used to make fun of me. She goes, you always want to be free. You always have the, your, uh, sh- your shirt open and you you want the air to fly through your hair. And she'd kind of make jokes about how I wanted to be free And I did want to be free. So there was sort of this like early yearning for excitement and risk taking. And I wasn't really that afraid. I was painfully shy. I was very afraid of people, but I wasn't afraid to, I guess, take a risk. My home life had become pretty non-existent. My father allowed me to live with him, but I more or less just stayed there. I had a bedroom and a blanket and a quilt and a pillow in the floor and a little TV. And I remember watching MTV sometimes really, really late in the middle of the night. I would come in and usually be pretty drunk or high or one of the other or both but he never he never said anything to me he more or less enabled me to be there i think he had a lot of guilt and uh he just sort of let me come and go and we never saw each other because he left for work really early he worked for eastman kodak his entire life uh right out of the service he went to work for kodak and was now in his 50s So he was just sort of standing by and letting me come and go. And 
I didn't have a whole lot to say. He would ask me about my job, and I'd say, yes, going real good. And But we just we communicated through notes. We would leave each other notes. But I would also drink his beer. If he bought beer, which he had started drinking and smoking cigarettes, uh, he never did that at our home growing up. He was always very active and gardened and started running in the 80s. And he'd kind of gotten himself into good shape. But after they divorced, he um, he kind of started his own downhill spiral partying and kind of being free from uh, that, you know, lifestyle of where there was so much structure and him and my mother were at war for 27 years. So it was a it was a really weird existence for him and I because I didn't know him and he didn't know me. Um, I always felt like I was his favorite, which is not saying a whole lot, but he did allow me to be there, and he didn't charge me any rent, and so I was taking advantage of it, and so on my part, it wasn't very respectful, but I didn't care. That was the thing. At, at that age, I just thought he owed me. I also had this girlfriend that I had put on this back burner because now that I had my new little family with the guys, um, I was keeping her on the lowdown because no one could find out about this. And so I would sometimes leave our little groups at these bars after hours, and I would leave and go down and find my girlfriend at some of the gay bars. And she had sort of gotten back together with uh, an ex as friends. They just kept assuring me, we're just friends now. And she would make fun of my job, like, oh, you're driving an ice cream truck and tell people, and, and they would sort of laugh at it, and it would really piss me off, but I would laugh along with it. And my girlfriend, uh, her name was Ann, we'll call her Ann number one, and she was gorgeous. She looked like Ann Margaret, and I was so in love with her. I was just obsessed. It was not even love. It was obsessed. I was obsessed with her. I'd been obsessed with her at college. I came home following her. I would have followed her to the end of hell, which I pretty much did. But she she had a real arrogance and condescending kind of disapproving way that guess who? Guess who? who guess who that's like? And, uh, yeah, I couldn't put any of that stuff together back then. That 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 was my mother. My mother just condescended the hell out of me. So, but I was after her constantly. It was that whole distancer pursuer. If I was not calling her or checking in with her or looking for her, then lo and behold, she would call me, and she would kind of you know come back around. It was this real push and pull kind of situation. So I kept her a secret and continued on with my my new journey with my new guys and going out and came in one morning and and there was this list beside the window where you check in and there was this list of names 1 through 20 and I started reading it and Bill came up I said what's this and the number one name was Kurt Salt Lake City, Utah. 
And I said, what is this? And he goes, oh, this is the list of the nation's top sellers. I said, the nation? He said, yeah, we're nationwide. And I go, well, who's that? Kurt. Oh, that's Kurt the Mormon. And I laughed. I said, Kurt the Mormon? He goes, yeah, yeah. He's the number one salesperson in the country. And he's, he's held that position for like two years. Nobody's ever passed him. Well, honey, give me something to compete with. And I looked at Bill and I said, really? Nobody's ever passed him? And all of a sudden I had this, you know, I call them zingers. I call them these sort of, I guess Oprah calls them aha moments. But something went through me like, oh, hell yeah. And and so Bill went on and on about how clean cut American he was and how... He was uh, just Stuart's golden child. I said, who's Stuart? Oh, well, he's coming here next week. I said, who is he? And he goes, he's the district manager. And I went, oh, another manager. And he described him, you know, and he said, oh, he's mean as hell. And he's going to come in here. We got to get everything ready. We got to get the freezer straightened up. And everybody's got to get in here on time. So he's giving me this lecture and... And he goes, oh, by the way, you're taking somebody with you today. And I went, what? He goes, yeah, I'm giving you somebody to train. And I said, I don't, I don't know how to train. Yeah, yeah, you just, just take him with you. That's all you got to do is just take him with you. And I was, oh, no, I don't want to take somebody with me. That means I got to talk to him and, and all that all day. And, and it's going to get in my way. He said, just take him with you. So... About 30 minutes go by, and here comes this guy walking in the door. And he's a good-looking guy, and, you know, he was uh, he was kind of cool, you know. He had this way about him, and, and Bill said, Jill, this is Dave. Dave, this is Jill. Because Bill would always be goofy, you know, with that crickety nose and that grin and trying to be all, like, official, and so I shook Dave's hand, and he smiled, and Bill said, you're going with Jill today. She's one of our top salespeople. She's doing really good, and she's going to take you on her route, and if you choose to do this, then your route would kind of be backed up to her route in the, kind of the same area, uh, not too far away, and and so <clears throat> I told him, I said, well, get that chair. <laughs> Grab the metal chair, that one chair that sits there, so he gets the chair, and and gets in the van, and here we go. So we go out in the day, and he starts to tell me that he had been kicked out of the army for selling hash in Germany. And he said, my father is in the military, so he worked it out where I didn't get in trouble, but now I'm here. And the way he talked was kind of intriguing because he was from California originally. And so, you know, he kind of like had this way of speaking that I would pay attention to. And and then we would get to the, the, the route, you know, and he could lean out and he started learning the ice creams and girls were giggling and he would hand them the ice creams. And, and I thought, well, hell, you know, he's kind of good to have in here today because the women are kind of liking him, you know, and. And so we were laughing, and I had my music, and we kind of listened to some music. And so I told him, you know, later, if he wanted to go out with us, then he's welcome. 
And of course he did. And we all go out and we started this like camaraderie with me and Bill and Dave and Chip and Rob and Lee and, and Dan, you know, and it was this, it was this fun little group and we would go and go to these seedy places and make fun of people and laugh our heads off and get drunk and get stoned and just just laugh about the ice cream and laugh about the the customers and tell stories about the whole day and it was a way to kind of decompress from this insanity of a job that's not real this is not a real job this is a fantasy this can't be a real job but I, you know, I kept making some money and I started making more money and, and I started getting into it a little bit more and a little bit more. And so one day, you know, we all came in that morning and, and Don was there and he says, hey, Jill, Dave, come over here. And I got a little nervous and he says, hey, listen, uh, I have this condo. And if you guys want to move in, you know, like roommates, I'll be glad to like sublease it to you because I know y'all are living with your parents. And uh, I'm, I'm going to move in with Regina. And we were like, ooh. And so I said, really, where's the condo? And he tells us and he says, it's got white carpet. It's pretty cool. And, you know, we were just like, oh, wow, you know, and had two water beds, one in each bedroom. And this sounds like a dream come true. And so, sure enough, you know, we made it work out, and we moved into that place, and Dave had a bedroom, I had a bedroom, we had the downstairs, we had couch, all the furniture was there, everything was there. Don had furnished it like this kind of bachelor pad, kind of what he thought was cool and chic, and we were like cracking up, but we move in, and Now we have a headquarters after work. We have a headquarters on rain days. We have a headquarters for everybody to come over. And it looked like a freaking ice cream convention because half of these guys didn't have a vehicle. They were allowed to take their ice cream truck at night as long as they plugged in their freezer. Now, by day, we used dry ice to keep the ice cream frozen. But at night, you had to plug it in or you would have deformed push-ups and and crooked froze toes and, you know, warped Concord grape bars. So everybody would come over and we'd have these big card playing, which I did not know how to play cards. They would try so hard to to teach me how to play poker And I would just drink vodka and laugh and try to play and forget the thing they had just told me. And But we listened to music and we loved, loved the music. And I'll never forget Bill in his John Belushi way singing Steely Dan, you know, just Kid Charlemagne. He knew every single word and he could he could mimic the lead singers of Steely Dan and then U2 and and Madonna and just playing music and laughing and having such a good time. And 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 if you walked outside and you opened the sliding glass door, there was a, a little deck and there was a pool and it was an above ground pool, but you couldn't see the sides of it. So it didn't look above ground, but the redneck pool of the universe, there it was. And we would get in there and we would swim around and be drunk and laugh. And it was just this 
this time, you know, and, and I remember thinking, you know, this kind of reminds me of of college. It kind of reminds me of Brevard College, that first two years of the the brotherhood and the sisterhood I had with the deadheads and camping and and you know eating eating poor pigs over a spit and weird shit like that and how it didn't matter what you look like and I love you so much I can't stand it I just need you in my lifestyle and I'm never going to give up these friends and these friends are in my cells and that's what it felt like I felt like I was just part of and that's all I ever wanted you know was just to to be a part of something and so It became my world, and now we had a place to live, and came in one day, and on the board, there was that that list was up, and Bill ran to me, and he goes, come here, and I came through the door, and he goes, come here, and he came over, and he pointed to the sheet of paper, and I looked on the sheet of paper, and it was number five, and it said, Jill Haney, Atlanta, Georgia. And I looked at him and he looked at me and he goes, you're number five, baby, you're number five. And I couldn't believe it. And I looked at him and I said, I'm going to get Kurt. You watch me. I'm going to get Kurt. I'm going to I'm going to become number one. I'm going to do this. And he laughed his head off. And all of a sudden, you know, days go by and now we have our visitor our district supervisor gets there, Stuart. He had dark red hair and dark brown eyes and red, red, red skin, almost like he was just about to have a heart attack and his like high blood pressure. And he had severe, uh, he had a few cysts on his neck and, and, kind of acne scars. He was very skinny and his shoulders were kind of up in his ears and he was real mean looking. He had this kind of reddish mustache and he wore a yellow button-down Oxford and a a pair of jeans with a belt, kind of high-waisted, kind of like, you know, you wanted to pull them down a little bit on his hips, but they were kind of up too high and a pair of penny loafers with a penny in them. And he drove a red car. So it was like this red kind of situation. He kind of gave me a little bit of acknowledgement, like, yeah, uh, I hear you're you're doing very well on your route. And I said, yeah. And he was coming from Kansas City. So we were all, we steered clear of him and just continued on our route, continued doing our thing. And then one night we were having a big party. We were laughing and and everybody kind of went home and Dave and I were there. And I just remember thinking, I think I'm going to cross the line with him. And it scared me because I would go and try to find my girlfriend and that would hurt in my heart and it would become this thing where I could I could turn somebody into somebody else. So Dave, one night, he came toward me and he kissed me. And I thought, okay, I'll just pretend like he's Ann number one. And so I did. And I went into this whole place and I slept with him. 
And the next morning I woke up and I was sick. I was just sick that I had allowed this to happen. But I was just as much a part of it as he was. And of course, he was all in heaven. And and he had to ride with me back to the, the ice cream headquarters because he didn't have a vehicle and he'd ridden home with me. And I'll never forget, we were riding through Norcross and the sun was coming up. And it was real early. We had to go in super early for a meeting. And I was sick, 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 hungover. And I remember that that song by Talking Heads, Burning Down the House, was on the radio. And he was kind of singing it. And he was all happy and giddy. And I wanted to punch him in the fucking face. And so we went back. And continued on, you know, and day after day. And and I kept slipping up. And this kept happening. And I thought, oh, Lord, how am I going to get out of this? I live with him. And this can't be a thing. And this new person showed up. Now, the ice cream company had been founded on the premises of this was going to help college kids to earn money. Well, there weren't any college kids there. These were all just rejects. And so this one girl was a University of Georgia student, and Summer was there, and and so she showed up, and her name was Tracy, and she was really, really good-looking and young and sexy. And I was like, whoa, who is that? And they were like, oh, that's Tracy. And I was like, we got another girl. And I was grateful to have another female. So... Dave kind of started taking a liking to her and I was like, good, maybe he'll like her and get this, get him off my back. And so I kind of kept pushing for that and pushing for that. And so finally, we all decided to go to a movie one night and we went and the midnight movie and we went to see The Hunger with David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve. And so we're all at Permitter Mall at the midnight movie, and we're all kind of drunk, and we're sitting there. It was Bill and Dave and Tracy and myself. Well, I had kind of put Tracy to sit by Dave, and I thought, I'll hook them up, and I won't you know, be involved, and then I'll get him off my back. And so we're watching the movie, and you know, I was in love with Catherine Deneuve. Oh, what a beautiful woman. What a what a sexy example of, I mean, she was like the epitome of like what I would consider uh, my dream woman, my DCT, my dream come true. So as we're sitting there watching the movie, I bent down, and Tracy had on really short shorts, and for some forsaken reason, I bit the inside of her leg, and she screamed out loud, and I was laughing. It was like a joke, because it was a vampire movie. Well, oh my God, we got kicked out of the theater. It was a huge, you know, fiasco, and we left laughing, and so these little situations were happening, and now Tracy's in the fold, And so finally, Jackson Brown had come to town and Dave was going to, wanted to go. And I said, why don't you ask Tracy? Just take Tracy. And he goes, okay, okay. So he asked her and she said, yes. And I'm like, good. So the night of Jackson Brown, I went by the the liquor store and I got a half gallon of vodka and I thought, good, they're going to be gone to Jackson Brown. I'll have a quiet evening by myself. And so 
I got home a little early. I, I actually came home and Dave's ice cream truck was there. And I thought, oh, well, they must have driven Tracy's car to Jackson Brown. And I walked into the, the condo and Dave was in the kitchen, like cooking. And I go, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm making manicotti. And he was a great cook. He was just part Italian. And, and, and he's like, yeah, I just decided to make this and the sauce. And and I put my vodka on the kitchen counter. And I walked around the corner. And I looked on the table. and There was a dozen roses. And I thought, oh, my God, he must be making dinner for Tracy. And then at the bottom of the roses was a card. And the card said, Jill. And he came around the corner. He had his apron on. And he looked at me and he goes, I canceled with Tracy. And I go, why? And he said, because I don't want to take her to the concert. He said, I want to take you. And I went in there and I got the vodka and I poured a big glass of straight vodka and I chugged it. And I said, okay, so what time are we leaving? Hammered is recorded and produced in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. It's narrated by Jill Haney, produced by Maggie Briggs and Jill Haney, and with sound design, editing, and music by Alexander Rodriguez. Our beautiful artwork was created by Lauren Caddick, and we'd like to send a special thanks out there to Minnie and Robin. You can check out our website, podcasthammered.com, and follow us on social media for updates.